In our last episode, Charlie Berger's trial unfolded, captivating the entire town from reporters to small children, and witnesses to the gangsters' crimes told story after story of their harrowing ordeals. <laughs> Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 27, Part 2 While the morning's testimony was in progress at Benton, the courtroom in Marion was the scene of another gang-related drama. After overruling Millich's motion for a new trial, Judge Hartwell set October 21st as the date for the man's hanging. On his feet, listening intently, Millich asked to be heard, and his request was granted. I had no fair trial, he said. The evidence was framed against me by Mr. Boswell. I never killed the man because I wanted to, but because he forced me to. I tell the truth. Judge Hartwell did not agree. Alone and unarmed, he said, Ward Jones was preparing to leave the place when Millich gunned him down. As if the crime itself were not shocking enough, the Burger Gang went to some trouble to focus the blame on their enemies, and to complete this travesty of human decency, Burger bought the flowers in a casket, all the while bragging that nothing was too good for one of his men. Concluding his comments, Hartwell announced that Millich would be hanged by the neck until dead in the Marion jail yard. This despite a new law designating electrocution as the supreme punishment in Illinois. Only for crimes committed after July 1st, 1927, were their perpetrators entitled to this newfangled, streamlined death. A familiar figure at the Jones trial was the ailing Clarence Roan. As testimony resumed in Benton on July 18th, Roan was again detailing the criminal activities of the Burger Gang. Speaking almost inaudibly, he said that the night before Adams' murder, he saw Burger, Ritter, Newman, the two Thomasons, and Highland go into a room at the cabin. They stayed about two hours, and after the meeting, Harry Thomason left. On the afternoon of December 12th, the witness said that he, Berger, and Harvey Dungey visited Marion, where Berger talked to Lori Price, and later to Arlie O. Boswell. Last to testify that afternoon was Ray Thomason, a salesman from West Frankfurt and the brother of Harry Thomason. While Harry was in jail at Marion, said the witness, Berger tried to get him to arrange his brother's bond. After Harry was sent to Pontiac, Berger somehow learned of Roy Martin's visit. Desperate, he told Ray to go to Pontiac and warn Harry that he must say nothing to Martin or anyone else. Ray Thomason did as he was told, but it was already too late. Even as his brother stepped down from the stand, Harry was in or on his way to Benton, he spent the night in the Martin home, where he was treated as hospitably as any visiting relative. He was especially taken with the cooking of Mrs. Martin's mother. Only a few years younger than the polite killer in their midst, the children of the state's attorney were agog, but at the same time they felt sorry for Harry, knowing that his best years would be shadowed by the prison bars. While they all dined, a bodyguard with a machine gun sat in the living room, as he had done and would do throughout the trial. 
In an alley across from the house, a similarly armed guard sat in a car. Smartly attired in the new suit of clothes Roy Martin had bought him, Harry Thomason took the stand the morning of the 19th, there to retell the story of Adams's murder in graphic detail. Although the particulars were well known by now to anyone who had time to read a newspaper, hearing the words from the murderer's own lips was well worth the hard chairs, the stifling heat, and the interminable waiting in line. His testimony, which took up most of that morning, was attacked that afternoon by the defense attorneys, detail by damning detail. Their many-pronged assault was markedly unsuccessful. That day, amid the questioning about the Adams killing, Harry was asked what he knew about the killing of his brother Elmo. His audience was stunned to hear him say that Bernice Berger had told him Charlie was responsible for the deaths of Elmo and the others that night at Shady Rest. For some reason, this astonishing remark was mentioned in few, if any, of the newspaper accounts. The next morning at 11 o'clock, after other witnesses had confirmed details of Thomason's testimony, Roy Martin announced that the state would rest its case. Court was adjourned until 1.30pm. In that hour and a half recess, Berger's attorneys first learned of Art Newman's refusal to cooperate with him in a joint defense. A setback to be sure, but not a mortal blow. That would come later. First to speak that afternoon was R.E. Smith. On the night of December 11th, he said, when his client allegedly hired the Thomasons, Berger was not even at Shady Rest, and his motor trips the following day were solely for the purpose of taking a bead on Carl Shelton. H.R. Dial admitted that Highland drove the car, but he claimed that he did so unwittingly. It was simply a coincidence that Art Newman met the Thomasons at Dowell following the killings, said W.F. Dillon. He added that his client was there only to deliver some gin. Thin as these arguments were, the attorneys had, at least, provided a basis for doubt in the minds of the jurors. In doing so, however, they had reckoned without Art Newman, who had plans of his own, plans set in motion during his cross-country journey more than a month earlier. At the completion of opening statements, Newman asked for a private conference with his attorney. When Dylan emerged a short time later from the small room adjacent to the courtroom, he brought back the very bad news to his colleagues that on the train trip from California, his client had told all to John Rogers and Jim Pritchard. Furthermore, Rogers had promised to keep the story quiet for a time, that time being until Newman's day in court. The gangster calmly told his attorney that his testimony on the following day would include everything he knew about the Adams killing. Shocked, outraged, and bewildered, Berger's attorneys knew their clients could present an account at least as convincing as Newman's, but only if he had time to prepare it. To that end, Charles Karch filed a motion for a continuance. When Karch and his colleagues began to argue for a continuance the next morning, they were met with strident resistance from Roy Martin. After ruling for the prosecution, Judge Miller instructed the defense to call its first witness, presumably Berger himself. His lawyers, however, knew if he presented an alibi only to have it shattered by the testimony of a hostile co-defendant, the results would be disastrous. For that reason, they agreed among themselves that Berger would not take the stand until after Newman testified. Dial announced the same for his client Highland. Now Newman could do his worst, and they fully expected it. 
But after conversing briefly with Dylan, Newman decided he would waive evidence until after the others had their say. A stunned courtroom heard his decision. Again came the invitation to present evidence, and again the answers were the same. The trial had been tedious, but now time leaped ahead, leaving the three defendants somewhat dazed and suddenly near the end, whatever that might be. As invoked by Highland's choicest quips, Newman's calculations, and Berger's darkest fears. On arguments alone, the case would go to the jury. Except for those arguments, the jurors' deliberations, and their verdict, the trial was over. For fear that the defense might even waive their arguments, Assistant State's Attorney Neely Glenn reviewed the prosecution's case in its entirety in his opening argument. He spoke for an hour and a half. At the conclusion of his presentation, during which he had paced before the jury box, employing all the gestures at his disposal, including the shout, that tool so indispensable to lawyers, auctioneers, and certain ministers, he got his point across. Think of it, gentlemen. Newman, 38 years old, and Berger, 45 years old, forcing two orphan boys, one 17 years old and one 19 years old, to go out and murder for them. Raising up the image of Elmo Thomason, who had no mother, no father, and, in his allegiance to Berger, had allowed the gangster to send his soul to hell. Glenn then asked what was the proper punishment for the three who were on trial. Hang the conspirators by their necks until they are dead, he demanded. Less fiery than his predecessor, young Harrisburg attorney Scariel Thompson stressed the dubious quality of the testimonies of the state's witnesses, in particular that of Harry Thomason and Clarence Roan. His colleague, Forrest Goodfellow, re-emphasized the questionable nature of such testimony. The morning of July 22nd found H.R. Dial arguing against the barbarity of hanging. His ringing appeal to the jurors' emotions contrasted sharply with Charles Karch's plea for reason. Karch argued that it had not been proved that Berger was present at Shady Rest the night the murder was plotted. Only two men had so far connected him with the killing, Clarence Roan and Harry Thomason, both lifelong criminals. Thomason especially was not to be trusted, for not only was he a convicted robber and murderer, he had also admitted to living in sin with a girl his own age. Feudist, friend of the Shelton brothers, and roadhouse operator, Joe Adams was as much a symptom of the times as Charlie Berger. Cataloging Joe's shortcomings brought to mind the story of the passing of a drunken Irishman. What did he die of? Asked a neighbor. He died of Tuesday, came the reply. What was the complaint? Well, there was no complaint. Everybody was satisfied. Charles Karch thought it a funny story and very much to the point, but the jurors were not amused. The afternoon's fireworks were provided by W.F. Dillon, 72, the oldest practicing lawyer in Franklin County. To be sure, he said, the state's attorney would ask for the death penalty. He is going to dupe you gentlemen to sign a death warrant for these men to hang until they are dead, 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 until their tongues stick out of their mouths and they hang suspended in the air. If it had been in his power to choke for a moment each of the jurors, he would have done so to let them feel death itself in its vast, bitter, and black. The death Roy Martin would plead that the jurors deliver to three fellow human beings. If you have to find these men guilty, give them some human punishment, so that when the end of time comes, and the lightning strikes, and the hills crumble, and the fire rages as the pearly gates open, we may meet these men, take them by the hand, and say that we have forgiven them. 
It was oratory from the 1890s, when machine guns were unheard of and automobiles were toys for the very rich and very foolish. It was a stunning performance. Last of the defense attorneys to speak was R.E. Smith, who in his allotted hour and a half pleaded with the jury to, first of all, disregard the testimony of Thomason and Roan. Only on the word of these two former henchmen, one of them the actual murderer, was Berger implicated in the killing, and even then only in the planning. He pleaded for mercy, noting that hangings such as those in Williamson County had not reduced to the crime rate. Would they shoot the defendant point-blank where he sat? If not, could they in good conscience order Jim Pritchard to do essentially the same thing? Would they stain the honor of Franklin County for the first and last time by causing to be erected the gallows, that symbol of the Dark Ages? The following morning, Roy Martin concluded the prosecution's case by urging the jurors not to be swayed by rhetoric. As for Thomason's credibility, he was convinced the boy was telling the truth. But even without his testimony, the evidence was sufficient for conviction. He concluded, I see in your verdict the passion of the rule of the machine gun gang and the establishment of the rule of the law. I know that you men will say the gang war has no place in this part of the state of Illinois and that the gunman or gangster has no place in Franklin County. That's what we ask, gentlemen. Thank you. The jury returned its verdict at about 1.15 p.m. the following day, a Sunday. Refusing to look the defendants in the eyes, the jurors entered the courtroom. Word had gone out, and the courtroom was almost filled. Judge Miller opened and read the sealed envelope that jury foreman Dow Fisher handed to him. Death for Berger, life imprisonment for Newman and Highland. As Ray Highland heard his sentence, he may have thought back to mid-November 1926. Three days each week, he worked at American Steel in East St. Louis. On a night before one of his days off, he happened to meet a fellow who said he had a car to sell, and asked if Ray would like to ride along the following day. Assured that they would be back in East St. Louis the next night, Highland agreed. He thought that maybe it would be fun. Only after they arrived at Berger's place at Shady Rest did he realize the car in question was stolen. He soon began working at the barbecue stand on the premises, although East St. Louis was still home. Not one for reading newspapers, he did not know Berger and the Sheltons were feuding, but he did remember having seen the Shelton brothers at Art Newman's hotel in East St. Louis. In a manner of speaking, Highland was still along for the ride. More than 50 years later, he would recall the day he drove two brothers to the home of Joe Adams. I didn't even know where I was at. We went into Benton in a roundabout way, and I'd only been in Benton once or twice. And they say, you go down to the corner, wait for us. We went to see a fellow. And then I heard a shot. I figured it was something. They came running down the street, jumped in the car, and said, get out of here. So, we did. Ray Highland would serve one week less than 24 years in the penitentiary. 51 years after the crime that put him behind bars for so long, the elderly man once known as Izzy the Jew quipped, I figured we'd be back in East St. Louis later that night, and it took me almost 25 years before I got back. On July 27th, Berger was formally sentenced to be hanged on October 14th, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Judge Miller announced the date after overruling a motion by Berger's attorneys for a new trial. They vowed to take their cases to the Supreme Court if necessary. 
Following his ruling, Judge Miller addressed the man standing before him. It was not his intention, he said, either to detract from the dignity of the court or to hurt Berger's feelings. However, your position is unique in the history of Illinois. You so far forgot yourself that you did many things and then set yourself up as superior to the law. You surrounded yourself with young men, and you were proud of the fact that when you appeared on the scene, the clarion blew to announce your arrival to your lieutenants. You became a character in the community in which you lived. The youth of the various counties assembled to watch your dexterity with your pistols. You had a glamour about you that youths tried to imitate. The condemned man standing before him was a puzzle to Judge Miller. An acquaintance, he said, had often mentioned Berger's kindness toward her simply because he knew her uncle. Appealing to the gangster's best impulses, the judge asked him, for his children's sake, to clear up the many as yet unsolved crimes attributed to his gang. Concluding his remarks, he said that there was no way of knowing what effect his little speech might have. But that aside, Berger's end would be the gallows. Berger's request to be heard was granted. Describing himself as a man hunted by his enemies, he said he had appealed to the Saline County Sheriff, whether Small or Turner he did not indicate, and to the Williamson County State's Attorney, Arlie O. Boswell, for protection, but finally had to settle for, quote, three Negro guards of his own. Only by swapping cars with another man had he escaped death the time eight men in a Cadillac came looking for him. I laid out in the weeds for nights and days, for seven days and nights, I didn't have my clothes off. He said that the real villains were the Newmans, both of whom he accused of causing Mrs. Price's death. As for Newman's contention that he had participated in the various crimes for fear of Berger's wrath had he acted otherwise, that was nonsense. He was never scared of me or no other human. I was in Heron one night. He took nine guns from 60 men. He weaved in and out of crowd like a bumblebee. I can prove that by 20 people. He also lashed out at John Rogers, the reporter who, with Newman, has conspired and condemned me to the public. Berger concluded his rambling remarks by saying he was now paying for his decision not to leave the country. That is the mistake I made, and that is the mistake I'm going to pay for. There was another mistake for which Berger would pay dearly. For hired killers, he had used two young fellows who were known in the area. Next time. Well... I was scared to death, and I didn't know what to do, and I started my motor, and by damn, it ran.